0: Welcome to Health and Veritas. I'm Harlan Krumholtz. And I'm Howie Foreman. We're physicians and professors at Yale University. We're trying to get closer to the truth about health and healthcare. This is a very special episode of the podcast.
1: Yeah. Hey, Howie, we're on August break. What are we doing here? Okay, folks, we thought we might get together to bring together some of the highlights of the many episodes that we've done so
0: far. And and so uh, Howie and I couldn't stay away from each other. We just thought we'd get together (laughs) and do this. That's right. But before we move on to the clips, I just want to mention a few exciting guests that we have coming up in the next several months. So first of all, Dr. Peter Hotez and his highly anticipated upcoming book, That Deadly Rise of Anti-Science. He'll be joining us on the podcast right around the time of the release of the book in September. Following that, Dr. Celine Gounder, an infectious disease expert who has faced her own anti-science attacks even in the face of the loss of her beloved husband, Grant Wall, last year. She'll be coming on the podcast to talk about her personal career journey against anti-science. And then the provost of the University of Chicago and our Yale alum, Catherine Baker, will join us and help us better understand the obstacles to getting fuller and broader insurance coverage. Following that, we have two separate chairs of surgery. Our current Yale colleague and chair, Dr. Nita Ahuja, and our former colleague and the chair at UCSF, Dr. Julie Sosa will come and join us and talk about the future of surgery. And then we've all been very excited to welcome Professor Zach Cooper to talk about his incredible impact at translating his research into policy prescriptions, including those that have helped tackle surprise billing. Yeah, I'm
1: really excited by all these people that we've lined up. It's going to be a terrific year. Our first clip here, though, talking about our highlights, is from our friend and colleague and just actual superstar right now in obesity medicine, Dr. Anya Jostreboff.
0: This is from episode 50. Dr. Yashkarboff is an associate professor and physician scientist specializing in obesity medicine, board certified in adult endocrinology and metabolism, pediatric endocrinology, and obesity medicine. As Harlan said, really just a rock star in this field, publishing some of the most important papers in the area of oral and injectable treatments of obesity. Uh, Her research focuses on using anti-obesity medication and neuroimaging to examine the neurobiology behind obesity. She has both an MD and a PhD, and she's been with us at Yale for for over the last decade working in this space.
1: Yeah, in this clip, I ask her about how one's body fat point gets, gets deranged, sort of gets messed up. And uh, what are we understanding that in obesity medicine today?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. And I think many things um, push that set point up. Um, and maybe I should back up. So Basically, our body has this interest in carrying the appropriate amount of fuel. And that appropriate amount of fuel is that appropriate amount of fat mass. And that means that having too much of it means we can't carry out our daily activities, just as having too little of it, we can't carry out our daily activities. And so it sets this this defended fat mass set point, as it does with many other um, things in our body, electrolyte, water balance, temperature, all these other things. And it does this with fat mass. So now superimpose on this the obesogenic environment and not just highly palatable food that's readily available 24 hours a day, but also stress, lack of sleep, circadian rhythm disruption, all these different things, unhealthy muscle because we don't have to move to catch our dinner. We can pick up the phone and, um, and call Uber Eats. So there are all these different things that are in the obesogenic environment. And so on a population level, our defended fat mass set point has been pushed up. So let's say somebody, you know, 100 years ago, their body mass index would have been, let's say, 25. Maybe now their body mass index would be 30. So on a population level, this has been pushed up because of the obesogenic environment and most people tend to gain weight over time. They gain maybe small amounts every year, but over time they tend to gain weight. And so obesity results from an inappropriate regulation of that body fat mass, or a, a, a dysregulation of that body fat mass. And so obesity treatment requires re-regulation of that physiology.
0: That's from episode 50 with Dr. Anya Yastrobov. Yeah, our next clip
1: comes from episode 80, where we interviewed Josh Cabal, a Yale SOM graduate who serves as managing director of Yale Ventures. That's uh, Yale's initiative overseeing the translation of research into new companies. It was just terrific to talk to Josh. I got a great
0: response. He really did. I mean, prior to joining Yale Ventures uh, in 2022, he served as chief operating officer from 2020 uh, and was also the commissioner of the Department of Administrative Services from 2019 for the state of Connecticut. He led our COVID response, was responsible for 25 state agencies, 30,000 employees and really did a fantastic job for Governor Ned Lamont.
1: Yeah, I had a chance to work with Josh in this capacity. I was part of this reopening Connecticut committee. And, and for a long time, we were really almost daily in contact, the committee with, with the state government and with Josh really sort of playing a key role. I got a chance to see him really at his best helping to choreograph what was, a, I think, a magnificent response in Connecticut and the And the mortality statistics really bear that out. But, you know, interestingly, prior to that public service, uh, I hadn't realized at the time, but he worked for IBM and served as CEO of Core Informatics, which provided data management services to pharmaceutical and other scientific industries before it was uh, acquired by Thermo Fisher.
0: Yeah, he's a remarkably talented guy. In this clip, we asked Jabal how he measures the success of his new program at Yale on innovators as well
3: as on the broader community. Yalees will know we have this saying: "For God, for country, and for Yale." Um, and so, you know, usually on banners that go on people's dorm room walls and stuff, it's the last line in the in the fight song, I think. But um, it's it's really about that. I'll, I'll go in reverse order. So for Yale, you know, the the impact is really. When we when we do a good job, we make Yale an incredible place that faculty want to come and they want to stay because they know they're going to be supported if they want to innovate. They want to see their their research translated for the benefit of society, and same for students, right? So increasingly, students want to go to a place that will support innovation, entrepreneurship. So you know, it's a very important uh, you know service to Yale as a university. Um, you know, for country, maybe it's a little less for country, maybe more for the state, for the state of Connecticut. There's a really important economic development aspect to this. is we spin out companies, those companies increasingly, you know, are based here in New Haven. They grow, they create jobs, they import capital from all around the world. that gets reinvested back out into the community. It fuels real estate development and, you know, just generally um, helps support the local ecosystem. So there's huge benefits there. And then, you know, for God, I don't, I don't know about God, but, you know, you think about some of the problems that, you know, our, our researchers are working on solving. I mean, we are improving human health. We're curing diseases. We're um, you know, creating new ways to pull carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. I mean, things that seem a little bit, uh, you know, out there oftentimes, but, you know, our, you know, our incredible faculty are, are, you know, hot on the trail of of some incredible breakthroughs and have already delivered so many in ways that will, you know, profoundly impact the world we live in in such a positive way. So it's, it's a wide variety of metrics that we measure, um, but they all come together to help those, those different components.
0: That was Josh Cabal from episode 80. Our next clip is episode 69 with Anna Kaltenbeck. Anna is a health economist, a graduate of our own SOM EMBA program, and also served as senior advisor to the Senate Finance Committee during the development of the drug pricing reforms of the Inflation Reduction Act. Here we asked her
1: what it was like to negotiate the IRA, especially given the lack of bipartisan support.
4: Uh, That's a great question. So yeah, it was not a bipartisan process. Um, And that definitely created some limiters because both the House and the Senate were on very, very slim margins. So uh, it did mean that there were some elements of this bill that got scaled back relative to where it might have been if it had been the build back better construct that we saw a year before that, which was really, you know, much broader negotiating authority. At least initially as it was envisioned through the house which then got scaled back to mostly older drugs and a lot fewer drugs um what really i think what carried the day especially for the negotiation provision, version which is i think where the greatest amount of daylight was between republicans and democrats here was that there was just it was incontrovertible that a small number of drugs were disproportionately responsible for spending in medicare part d that it was the same number of drugs or that was the same drugs that had been on the market for a really long time. They weren't necessarily, you know, they weren't changing the therapeutic standard of care or anything like that. They'd been there for a long time. The manufacturers who are making aren't necessarily putting that money that they're making from these products into developing great new products that might address additional problems. And meanwhile, you see these patients who are vulnerable and have bought into a program that honestly was meant to protect them from this, now really getting damaged. And that, I think, was really what carried the day. It was a very cleanly definable target, and people were able to identify with the the folks who were getting harmed by it. And I think that's how that evolved.
0: That was Anna Keltenbeck from episode 69. Our next
1: clip comes from the er very early days. It's from episode 19 with Dr. Akiko Iwasaki. I, I've had the pleasure and honor to work really closely with her. She is amazing and, and was really extraordinary in this early part of the our, our experience
0: with the podcast and attracted such a big audience uh, to this podcast, the, the one that yeah. we did with her. Dr. Iwasaki is Sterling Professor of Immunobiology, a professor of Molecular and Cellular and Developmental Biology at Yale, and a Howard Hughes Medical Institute investigator. Her lab has always focused on immune systems and how they defend against viruses. But since the pandemic began, she has become a trusted COVID-19 expert.
1: Howie, do you know on Twitter or now X, you know, she has more than 250,000 followers and, and is really the kind of person that people look to all around the globe for information about the pandemic and immunology in general. And is such a champion of women in science. She's she's really an inspiring figure. Our conversation here primarily focused on the root causes of long covid an area that we've been working on together. And in this clip, we learned how her mother inspired her to be an advocate for women and minorities in science and academia. So this clip was really not so much about particular scientific advances, but more about her own personal influences and it was really great that she was willing to be so forthcoming about this.
5: So, yeah, my mother had a, uh, my, both my parents had a very large influence on my life. And my mother um, worked for a, a large sort of uh, media company in Japan. She worked there, you know, since before she got married. And usually uh, by, at that time in Japan, as a woman who, who gets married, uh, you're sort of expected to leave the company. Uh, she didn't do that, and she had her first pregnancy with me, and she was kind of pressured to, you know, leave the company now that she's pregnant. But she didn't leave, and the second pregnancy, again, she got a lot of pressure to leave, but she didn't. And so, and third pregnancy, she again stuck with the company, and uh, there, she suffered a lot of, you know, harassment and jeering, and you know, daily kind of um, abuse at the company and yet she persevered. And because of that experience, she had gathered other women around her and um, other men who were supportive of women who are pregnant or who have children to stay in the workforce and to create an environment that other women don't have to suffer the same consequences. And so she um, enabled certain regulations to be in place in that company so that other women can uh, succeed and stay in the workforce without such harassment that she suffered. And so that's sort of the origin of why I became uh, an advocate of women in science and underrepresented minorities who are also um, mistreated in academia.
0: That was from episode 19 with Akiko Iwasaki. Our next clip comes from episode 62, With Dr. F. Perry Wilson,
1: who's a Yale nephrologist, epidemiologist, associate professor, and a good friend of ours who happened to be coming out with a book at the time. And we were really excited to have him on. The book was called, is called, How Medicine Works and When It Doesn't, Learning Who to Trust to Get and Stay Healthy.
6: In this clip, we talked about two examples of research fraud from his book. These two cases of fraud, I think, are both telling. One is a fascinating case of how the media can go awry. This was a study uh, that uh, purported to randomize women undergoing in vitro fertilization to either usual care or Unbeknownst to them, a group of people would be praying for their pregnancy to be successful. So, a study of a randomized trial of prayer, and they found about a doubling of the pregnancy rate, successful pregnancy rate, from 25 percent to 50 percent in the prayer group. Um, the lead author was the chair of OB/GYN at Columbia um, Medical, which was my alma mater. Uh, the the study was published in the science sections of the New York Times. Well, it's published in the Journal of Reproductive Medicine, but it was reported on in the science section of the New York Times. This is you know a big deal. Um, it turned out that the entire study was was made up whole cloth. It was written by a guy named Daniel Worth. Uh, D- Daniel Daniel Worth was subsequently convicted. I mean more or less seems to be a con artist, subsequently convicted for check fraud and and like cashing his dead father's social security checks, that kind of thing. The study never really happened, but it shows how the media is kind of desperate for these narratives, these breakthroughs uh, that can lead people astray. And even the best quality study, right, a randomized trial, the thing we elevate as like the pinnacle of evidence, you know, if you just make it up, um, you've you've got problems there. Uh, the other one though, you know, that didn't do too much damage, I don't think. But the one that really did, of course, was Andrew Wakefield's study on the MMR vaccine. And and this is the study that purported to show in twelve kids, I believe, who had received the MMR vaccine that within two weeks they developed this regressive form of autism. Those the ones who could talk stopped being able to talk. The ones who could walk stopped being able to walk. It got worse and worse. It's published in The Lancet, you know, one of the the, the premier medical journals uh, in the world. And Wakefield uh, had a press conference even before it was published saying, you know, the MMR vaccine needs to be taken off the market. It subsequently came to light that Wakefield had a financial interest undisclosed in in, in this article, which was that he was starting a company. It was founded for the purpose of litigating vaccine harms. Uh, the idea, I think, would be that, you know, you you patent a blood test that you could use on your kid, um, to show somehow that the vaccine had caused their autism. Um, and he there's messaging of him to a friend saying he thinks this is a multimillion dollar company. But of course, it depends on that link actually existing in the first place. Um some subsequent sleuthing from a reporter uh, named Leaf, Andrew Leaf, I believe, show, you know, investigated the medical records of these kids showing that, in fact, none of them had regressive autism. and and I believe only one or two developed any symptoms after the MMR vaccine. What's worse, It wasn't a random sample of kids. It was kids who were recruited from a network of parents who had thought that the vaccines harmed their children. So they had sort of selected a group that already had a a pre-existing belief that there was a problem here. Um, The the study was subsequently retracted by The Lancet, but not for 10 years after its initial publication. And and it really is the birth of the modern anti-vax movement. And so this type of thing can do a lot of harm.
0: That was Dr. F. Perry Wilson from episode 62. Our next clip is from episode 67 with Professor Jeffrey Sonnenfeld. Oh my gosh, we were so lucky to get Jeff on. You know, he's been <laughs>
1: so busy on so many different fronts. I mean, particularly on the world stage, you know, the work he's been doing with with Ukraine, the work that he's been doing, sort of bringing light to, uh, to, to sort of corporate engagement around the issues with Russia and in and, and, and a wide range of areas. He's the, uh, as many people know, the Associate Dean for Leadership Studies and the Lester Crown Professor in the Practice of Management at the Yale School of Management. And previously had been the Dean at Emory. And, and it's just got a whole list of accolades and, and accomplishments in books that he's written, The Hero's Farewell, for
0: example, and Firing Back. In 2018, he was awarded Ellis Island Award. Business Week named him among the top 10 business school professors influencing contemporary business thinking. Directorship Magazine named him among the 100 most influential players in corporate governance. And he just receives an additional major award from the Academy of Management. He is just a huge academic thought leader and uh, the CEO whisperer. Yeah, it seems like he's
1: on TV almost every week. We were lucky that he fit us in. In this clip, we ask uh, uh, Jeff Sonnenfeld, when he left his Philadelphia suburb, because he grew up in Philadelphia, so he sort of got into that, did he ever think that one day he would be an associate dean at Yale and known as the CEO whisperer, as you say, Howie?
7: No. Uh, all I knew is that uh, first, I didn't want to um, to become a men's clothing retailer like my poor dad wound up trapped into that field coming out of the Second World War. But I did think that I would be... Uh, dressed in white like you guys, uh, actually, was a closet pre-med uh, at, at Harvard as an undergraduate. And uh, working as a volunteer in Mass General Hospital, I realized that I didn't have the uh, uh, the, the passion that you guys have uh, and the patience to work as you did. I loved, of course, uh, the the interaction with, uh, with people in distress and being able to help. However, I loved the dynamics of the larger hospital and the way the systems worked. And Mass General was was a very happy place. My parents had been very ill when I was young. Uh, uh, many times I had them both in the hospital at the same time. and was was being colorblind. I was running that family clothing business uh, while still in high school, uh, periodically. And the Philadelphia hospital system at that time uh, was not a pleasant system to be in. Uh, Massachusetts, it was especially Mass General, was so different with the entrepreneurial sense of different units, the sense of of, of pride in the enterprise. Uh, I thought, this, this is remarkable. This is how healthcare could be. But I realized this is how organizations could be. So I wound up morphing to my, my parents' shock and distress uh, into taking a look at management and organizations instead of taking a look at becoming a, a, a pre-med. That was from episode 67 with
0: Professor and Dean Jeffrey Sonnenfeld. Up next is the one that I did
1: reluctantly. Howie sort of dragged me into an episode that would focus on me. You know, we have to get back to you, Howie, because we that one day that we had a someone drop and we had an opening, you know, we talked a little bit about you, but it was Sort of off the cuff and wasn't is, really well prepared. There's a lot more
0: to say about you, Harlan, and I couldn't be more proud to talk about you. We, we actually could do six more episodes about you and still not touch the surface. Oh, my God. So anyway,
1: anyway, you, you thought that we should take a clip from me. I, I, again, think we should be giving
0: light to others, but that's We fine. did not think we should take a clip from you, Harlan. You are literally our number one downloaded <laughs> episode. anyway. Okay, here
1: we go. Here was I think a point where you asked me about a paper I collaborated on with the surgeon general who also eventually joined us on the podcast uh, and uh, and Carrie Gross, a terrific faculty member and friend. And this this was a paper that had been cited almost 2000 times and yeah. and you asked me about about this paper. So here's the clip. Well, you know, thanks to be Bacon, Carrie, you know, that's a terrific paper. It was part of a theme of papers that was sort of looking at representation within some of the clinical research that we were doing, and and you know, it, it, there's that paper, but there's actually a body of work. I mean, there are a couple of things. One yes. is, you know, I mean, if I if I have a superpower, I think it's like I have lots of ideas. If I have another superpower, it's like I'm really, I mean, I'm lucky to be working with really great people, and know that's not a superpower as much as it is just good fortune. But that you know, really talented, amazing people around me. In this case, you know, these guys really powered this paper, but it was part of a Maybe, like, I don't know, like 10 or 20 papers we'd written, which really characterized this sort of inherent bias in our system to exclude women or, or, uh, uh maturitized populations. I mean, that, that too often our research had been focused on white males and that, you know, we really needed to be attentive to the strategies that we were using that were recruiting people into these studies. And, uh, yeah, that's, that's highly cited, but, like I said, there's also a big body of work that I'm really proud of that I think began the conversation nationally with others, with others about how... Now, we're still not there,
0: by the way. We're not done with this, but it's, no, it's still but, like but a pathway. but you were early on. I, I will say when I go back and look and, and preparing for this, I went back and looked at a lot of what you did. You are years ahead of most other people. In, in hitting what I consider to be the most important topics. You were writing about health equity way more than 10 years before it became a topic that mainstream media was covering in a big way. And I think papers like that had a huge impact and they are rightly highly cited. That was episode 72 with our
1: own Harlan Krumholtz. Our, our next clip comes from episode 77, Megan Rainey She's the new
0: dean of the now independent Yale School of Public Health. It's independent now, isn't it, Howie? It's not totally independent. And that's what makes her so extraordinary because she will shepherd the transition. But when is that? When's that going to happen? July 1st next year. So she's doing it it all in one year.
1: Oh, I thought it was this year. Well, she's got a lot to to do. She's amazing. She's a practicing emergency physician, researcher, a, a public figure, someone who's been involved in policy, has done so much around prevention of violence. and and involvement in in how to uh, manage behavioral health problems, lots on COVID. She was uh, also someone that people looked to during the COVID pandemic for really trustworthy information, good information, and uh, we are so lucky to have her here.
0: Yeah. Look, in our next clip, we asked her how she became
8: interested in public health, and that's a great origin story. So my transition into public health, I often say that I was doing public health uh, before I knew what public health was. Really, if I go back to middle school and high school, I was already working on public health issues around substance use disorder, improving food access for uh, low-income elderly, and around violence prevention. And then I took a long and circuitous route through Harvard, through Peace Corps, into medical school, considered a degree in public health during medical school, which was when I was really exposed to the idea of an MPH at Columbia but honestly couldn't take on more debt at that point. And so decided not to get a master's, went and did residency. And one of the reasons that I chose to do a fellowship in injury prevention was of course that global background and that longstanding work that I had done around the areas of violence prevention, but also it gave me a master's for free. And so that's how I managed to eventually get my MPH. But I always feel like that was the icing on the cake for what had been a long um, movement into this field. I think of public health as being part of the underpinning of emergency medicine, um, my, my clinical specialty. You know, We're the safety net in the American healthcare system, and I often talk about us as also being the canary in the coal mine for public health problems in the United States. Um, we start to see, or we saw opioid uh, overdose deaths earlier than they were noted in the media. We certainly saw upticks in gun violence and noted how firearm injury was a public health problem before others were yet talking about it. And similarly, we see the challenges that undomiciled people have with accessing good healthcare, the challenges with mental healthcare, um, particularly for young people that predated the pandemic and so on. So that that ethos or kind of disciplinary approach has suffused my work um, since long before I got a master's. And then uh, the master's in public health has informed everything that I've done since. That was Megan Rainey from episode 77. Up next, we spoke to Dr.
0: Michael Olasco on episode 75. He's the co-director of Boston University's Chronic Traumatic Encephalopathy Center to discuss the consequences of years of hits to the head for football players and other athletes. He's an associate professor of neurology at Boston University School of Medicine, and he's the principal investigator of multiple NIH-funded grants his research focuses on the relationship between repetitive head impact and traumatic brain injury with later life cognitive decline and neurodegenerative diseases. While the focus is typically on college or professional athletes, we asked Dr. Olasco how repetitive head injuries impact kids.
1: And I know a lot of parents were, were, you know, gave us feedback on this, how much they appreciate sort of hearing about this.
3: It's a great clip. We talk about professional football as people who play in the NFL, but we see it at the amateur levels. And, you know, there's only a very small portion of the population who goes on to these elite levels. Right. We really need to focus on college and high school because that's, that's that's what the worries me the, the most.
0: That's what worries yeah. me the most. And we have kids that are having multiple, multiple impacts for three, four or five years uh, or longer. And we're not treating them the same way, they don't have agents, they don't have somebody pulling them out every time they have a concussion as much. And are, are you looking at the, I know you've done at least one large paper that's been extremely well cited, but what what is the evidence that we have on sort of the high school and younger population right now?
3: So I would say that that the risk for CT, we, we so far based on our, on our data, seems to kind of really increase once you play you know five or more years. So people who are playing just high school or, or below, their risk is probably low. Um, but that said, in that large study you're referring to, a, a high percentage of, of people who played at college level uh, had evidence of, of this progressive brain disease. and millions play at the college level, so that's concerning.
0: That was Dr. Michael Olasco on episode 75.
1: Our last clip was one that was really popular from episode 64 with Gil Addo. Addo is the CEO and co-founder of Rubicon MD, which is aiming to expand access to specialty care by providing virtual consultations to primary care physicians. Of course, this really became very important during COVID as telehealth sort of really, really, really took off. He co-founded it in 2013, has been at it for a while. It serves over 8,000 primary care uh, clinicians. And the uh, Huffington Post named Rubicon one of the five companies defining the future of healthcare. It was just, uh, I don't know. It's really, he's such a, so engaging. He's done so well. It was really a great episode. And, and I, I think I know why it was so popular.
0: You know, he, he, uh, he helped bring a lot of insight to this. He's an inspiring guy. The following clip is taken from a moment when we asked him about the role that his grandmother played in how he built Rubicon MD.
9: My grandmother on my mother's side um, and my family from mother's side is from Barbados. My grandmother was there and she developed a brain tumor. Um, She traveled to Boston to one of the major academic medical centers um, there um, and had surgery, incredible teaching hospital. Um, That everybody would be familiar with, Um, and then spent five years going back and forth between Barbados and Boston on the management of the tumor, kind of all the post-op management. Um, And I did, and you know, that's five years. You know, going through you know my childhood. That's a pretty um, impactful experience to have, her you know, coming, leaving, family coming together. Like I know. Uh, folks have all had, you know, loved ones go sick. Um, and that stuff brings people together. And it, um, at a young age, it can um, have a uh, quite an impact. So the, the thing that I took from that early on was I wanted to be in healthcare. I wanted to do something that had real impact. And I wanted to, you know, impact the system. I didn't know what that meant. It wasn't until I got further along, probably I, I give people a lot um, the, the commercial for your class, Howie. That really exposed me to healthcare at a system level. What are all the forces that impact the delivery of healthcare? And it really helped me to understand that what was really happening with my grandmother was an access challenge. And um, there's fundamentally just better access um, in these centers that have been co located geographically for very good reasons in the past. Um, and so I wanted to build something that took that expertise and got it out to the communities where it was necessary and valuable. So I met my co-founder Carlos in 2013 and we started building and we start, built Rubicon MD really on this mission to democratize medical expertise. And um, that's at the DNA of everything we do is um, that mission. People join us because they're mission driven. Um, and we try to keep that front and center. And I will say since starting the business, probably once a year, um, there's an experience I hear about or somebody tells me about with their loved ones. Or recently, my wife's gone through with one of her close friends that reinforces that need for access and all the challenges that emerge from not having it.
1: That was the last clip we have for today. It was from episode 64 with Gil Addo. So it's great to get together, even though this is our break, Howie. And uh, thanks to all of you out there for joining us in this best of compilation of Health and Veritas. We're starting our third year in just a few weeks, and we'd love to get your feedback. We can always be reached at health.veritas. Yale.edu. If you enjoy the show,
0: please rate us on Apple
1: Podcasts. It
0: helps people find us. Yeah, and we're going to return in early September with new weekly episodes. In the meantime, Harlan and I both wish you a happy and Healthy August. Our mission is to bring you interviews with leading and emerging figures from the world of health and healthcare, as well as breaking news, facts, analysis, and the occasional pithy banter. Even if uh, we can squeeze out any pithy banter, we do, right? Listen, Harlan, I mean, this is the joy of my week is that you and I get to have pithy banter. When else can (laughs) we schedule it?
1: Health and Veritas is produced for the Yale School of Management and Yale School of Public Health. Thanks to our researchers, Inez Gil, Sophia Stumpf, into our producer, Miranda Schaefer. They are absolutely amazing every thank week. Thank God for them. Thank yep. goodness. Thank goodness. Talk to you soon, Howie. Thanks, Harl, talk to you soon.